Hi, everybody. Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother, Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we're a week away from Christmas Eve, and we are a day away from Hanukkah. It's a great time of the year. So much is going on with the holidays. We have talked about the holidays. And last week, I asked you, were you ready for the holidays? And you weren't. But how's it going now? Probably less ready than I was last week, but I think that's <laughs> that's typical with little kids. But we're excited to remember Christmas, to set traditions with our family. We, Of course, I have young kids, as you know, so this is an excited time of the year for them, and we want to make sure they know the reason for the season and also Hanukkah. We're excited to talk about that as well. And, Jimmy, we're making potato latkes and sugar cookies. What do you think about that? Oh, wow. Well, you get really into it. I'm excited for you. Hey, there's a great article in the Jerusalem Post, and I hope you do have a worldview where you go to different sites, and we try to provide you with the criteria to look at sites. But on the Jerusalem Post, there is the silver shekel that was found near the Temple Mount proving Jewish history of Israel. Well, we understand and we believe the Bible, and it's just interesting, Rick, how so many times science, whether it be archaeology or creation science or any type of, just confirms that the Bible is correct. Isn't that interesting? It certainly is. We talked about that in Israel all the time. We had archaeology. We had all these different things. But when it came down to it, the manual, the scripture is where we found out. And like you said, it always proves to be true. On today's program, Steve Herzog with Friends of Israel talking about the Jewish experience of Hanukkah. We also have our broadcast partners that are going to be looking at why the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. It was because they were being persecuted, and it seems like history repeating itself. And we do know that that is the case, as we are going to find out on today's program, which is why we focus and we start with Ken Timmerman today, Rick. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's an author and analyst, and he's our expert on geopolitical affairs. He joins us every week. If you want to find out more about Ken, you could go to KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's a pleasure. Well, we'll start in Russia, and the EU has approved new sanctions against Russia over the Ukraine war. Can you tell me, is that going to do anything, Ken? Well, look, I, I think these uh, sanctions are essentially meaningless. They're not even telling us exactly what they are. They're just saying that on Thursday, the European Union approved a new package targeting some of the oligarchs, but also targeting, they claimed, Russia's ability to resupply its uh, military with modern weapons. Uh, exactly who they're going to target, they won't say. But look, the sanctions haven't done much so far anyway. The Russian mm. economy is actually booming. <laughs> they are earning more money today from the sale of oil than they were before they invaded Ukraine. And even this measure that the U.S. supported and the EU supported to restrict the sale of Russian oil over the price of $60 a barrel, even that has been made a mockery of. The uh, Russians may sell oil for $60 or less, but what happens is that the middlemen are tacking on 10, 20, $30 a barrel premiums to cover transportation costs, in particular transportation costs if they don't have international insurance. There is a whole dark fleet of tankers out that are working for both the Russians and the Iranians. There were something like 70 of them in 2020. There's a group called United Against Nuclear Iran that's been tracking them. 
70 in 2020. Today, it's 257. It is absolutely unbelievable. It is uh, quadrupled in two years. These are tankers used for the black market oil trade. They shut off their transponders once they load the oil so they cannot be tracked in international waters. And then when they, they unload their oil at an illicit port, off they go. 257 of them. So there are plenty of these tankers around to load Russian oil, and there are plenty of purchasers in India, China, and South Africa. Well, if these sanctions aren't doing so well to restrict Russia, one thing that they may be doing is pushing Russia towards their allies. And uh, we've been hearing more and more about how this relationship between Russia and some of his allies, including Iran, who we talk about pretty often here on this program, has been ongoing for years. And and really now it's coming to fruition. and, And we didn't really know how strong that cooperation was. Well, if we did not understand how strong that cooperation was, it's because we weren't watching. Uh, As you say, we've been tracking it here on this show. Uh, But to hear some of the recent statements by European uh, leaders, uh, such as uh, Commission President uh, Ursula von der Leyen, is frankly surrealistic. Uh, She told a group in Bahrain just this week that the EU is just now waking up to this Russia-Iran connection. And she said, this is a direct quote, it's pathetic. She says, it took us too long to understand the very simple fact that while we work to prevent Iran from developing nuclear weapons, we must also focus on other forms of weapons proliferations from drones to ballistic missiles. Well, I don't know what cave uh, Ms. van der Leyen has been hiding in for the past 20 years, uh, but she sure hasn't been watching what's going on between Iran and Russia. They have been cooperating, building up each other, but the Russians in particular have been building up Iran's ballistic missiles. I testified on that in 1998 in front of the U.S. Congress on several occasions on Russian aid to the Iranian missile program. It's something that we really do know a lot about, and it's only the Europeans who've had their heads in the sand. Other Russian allies that we need to talk about, and there's been news coming out this week that Turkey uh, and Erdogan are seeking a trilateral mechanism with both Russia and a new actor, Syria. Uh, Well, that's that is an interesting development because Erdogan has been at odds with the Syrians since 2012 when he broke diplomatic relations with Assad. And now he's seeking a one-on-one meeting with Assad. He hopes that the Russians will broker the meeting. I expect that they'd be very willing to do so. Look, whenever you get Erdogan trying to do something in either Iraq or Iran or in Syria, there's one big subject on his plate, and that's the Kurds. Erdogan is trying to whack the Kurds yet again. Remember, there is a portion in northern Syria on Turkey's border that has been controlled, independent of the Syrian government, by an autonomous Kurdish government. That is something that Erdogan has been trying to smash. uh, And so he is hoping now to smash that together with uh, Syria's Assad. Assad has allowed that north northern region to, I, I won't say flourish, but to exist because they have blocked ISIS. They are keeping ISIS out of the area, and they're keeping ISIS from challenging Syria from that part of the country. So he has tolerated them. Now Erdogan is going to try to get his cooperation to end that quasi-independent Kurdish state in the north of Syria.
Well, that's a very interesting combination there. We talked about it last week about Turkey's involvement, trying to make alliances with Russia, with China, with Iran, with all these different areas. And we continue to keep reporting on those events and we will do so. Well, my last two questions, I'd like to focus on the Middle East, kind of already talking about the Middle East when we're talking about Iran. But there's a story coming out this week that basically the Saudis are saying that all bets are off if Iran gets a nuclear weapon. Well, the Saudis are finally saying out loud uh, in public what they've been telling uh, diplomats, telling U.S. officials for several years. If you don't focus on Iran and prevent the Iranian regime from gaining a nuclear weapons capability, we're going to do it. We're going to acquire nuclear weapons. Now, they didn't say that. They said this week, all bets are off. But everybody knows what that means. <laughs> that means that the Saudis, the Turks, and others could acquire nuclear weapons. By the way, Rick, this is not a novel concept. This is not something new. This is exactly what people who study proliferation warn about. When you have a rogue proliferator like Iran acquiring nuclear weapons, it encourages their neighbors to do the same. The only reason why the neighbors of North Korea, another uh, nuclear proliferator, a rogue state. The only reason North Korea's neighbors have not acquired nuclear weapons is because of the U.S. The U.S. has essentially extended a, a nuclear umbrella to South Korea and to Japan and to others in the region. Uh, that is not happening in the Middle East. The U.S. is not extending a nuclear umbrella to Saudi Arabia. In fact, we are trying to alienate the Saudi government. The Biden administration has been extremely hostile towards them in, in ways that are just extraordinary. We've talked about it on this show, uh, but it, there is no inherent geopolitical interest in the way that Biden has been treating Saudi Arabia. So he's just pushing them into the arms of the Chinese and the Russians in particular. Well, that was my last question too, Ken, and you're right. I mean, all of these things taking place right now, we look at Russia and Iran and China and these alliances growing tighter. Turkey is involved now, Syria is involved. Who's not involved? Whose influence is receding? The United States and places like China are moving in. Is is that what you see as well? Well, absolutely. Just this week, President Xi met with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. He traveled to Riyadh. He made his third overseas trip since COVID and was received quite warmly uh, by the Saudi crown prince, a slap in the face to President Biden. You contrast this warm uh, handshake and the meeting of the minds between Xi and uh, Mohammed bin Salman to the fist bump that mm -hmm. uh, he shared with President Biden uh, earlier in the spring when Biden came hat in hand saying, won't you pretty please increase your oil production because uh, I've got midterm elections coming up and I don't want gasoline prices to be too high. The Saudis said no. Today, you have China investing in Saudi Arabia, China investing in the region, part of this Belt and Road initiatives, and the Saudis are happy to see them come in because they see America's influence receding. So they need another protector. Well, Ken, we do continue to report on these stories and you continue to educate our listeners that these things are happening. They're similar, but as we continue to go along, there are subtle changes and it does Certainly, you could see a linear progression. It's moving in a particular direction. I appreciate you keeping our listeners informed of what's going on. And we look forward to talking to you again soon to continue to keep us informed. Thanks so much, Rick. It's uh, always a pleasure. 
We're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Middle East News Update with David Dolan, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The United States-Africa Leaders Summit closes in Washington, D.C., with the U.S. promising to commit $55 billion to Africa over the next three years. Religious freedom was not on the agenda, but Todd Nettleton with the Voice of the Martyrs USA says it should have been. Persecution in Central Africa rose so much this year that VOM is tracking two new countries. Be a voice for the voiceless at missionnews.org. Meanwhile, Sat7 Pars released a new live program called Church for Afghanistan. Most Afghan viewers will see it on Facebook Live, but it'll be broadcast on Instagram as well. The show is hosted by an Afghan pastor living in Germany. The show will look at current situations in Afghanistan through a biblical lens. UNICEF recently designated Afghanistan as the worst place in the world to be born amid health and persecution risks. Pray this program supports the body of Christ in Afghanistan. Mission Network News is a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. The book of Revelation is God's final word to man and the timeline of the last days revealed to the Christians. This symbolism-filled example of apocalyptic literature can be difficult to understand, especially when simply reading it from beginning to end. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung's latest book, Revelation, A Chronology, takes a walk through the prophetic book of Revelation in the order that the events will take place, chronologically, sharing insights into its true meaning and doing so in an easy-to-understand and practical way. If you have difficulty understanding the book of Revelation, get your copy of Revelation, A Chronology, and let Dr. Jimmy DeYoung aid you in your understanding of this profound end-times prophecy book that God has preserved in His scriptures for Christians in the last days. To order your copy of Jimmy D. Young's Revelation, a chronology, call us toll-free at 877-674-3298 or visit our website at prophecytoday.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the segment of the program that we call our Middle East News Update. And joining us, like he does just about every week, is our good friend, a journalist with many years of experience in Israel, Dave Dolan. Dave, thanks for being with us today. It's a blessing to be able to do it, Rick. Well, David, we'll start with what is probably the biggest story this week, is the fact that recently elected Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is about to have his government formed. Can you tell us what the status of that situation is? Yeah, he's putting the final touches, Rick, on his new government. It took a lot longer than anybody expected, basically because the Likud party, the ruling party, has 31 seats in the new government, and the three religious parties that are joining his coalition together have uh, 34 So you've got quite a disparagement there, and that has made the negotiations more difficult. But Netanyahu gave two interviews during the week in which he said that he is near the uh, end of forming the coalition. One was to NPR in the States and another to an Arabic paper in the Gulf. And to both of them, he made plain that he is going to remain in control. He will set the final policy. This as more and more Jewish groups and countries and uh, others express concern about the more right-wing members of the new government. Uh, Ben Gavir going to be the uh, police minister, essentially. And by the way, Rick, he has asked that the border police 
Now, that is a separate police force in Israel that is uh, under the control now of the army, and a lot of its members are Arabs, Arab trackers and that sort of thing, and they operate, as the name suggests, mostly along the borders of Israel and in the territories. He wants that to be brought under his authority, Ben Gavir does, and taken away from the army. And Netanyahu is still negotiating that. There's a couple other demands. I mentioned that uh, Shmoterik, who is going to be a minister, wants the settlements to be placed more or less under his control. He wants an office in the foreign ministry, even though he won't be foreign minister. And uh, Netanyahu himself has legislative demands. Uh, I won't go into it. It's too weedy. But those are the things he's working on. But he told NPR They are joining me. This is a quote. I'm not joining them. So again, he's making clear that he will have the final say. He said the gay rights movement won't be affected. Arab rights in Israel won't be affected. And to the uh, Gulf newspaper, he stressed that he will really work hard to bring Saudi Arabia into the peace fold with Israel. He said that Palestinians uh, would benefit from that, everybody would benefit from it, and he's going to redouble his efforts, he said, to do that. Of course, he doesn't have Donald Trump as an ally in that anymore, but to Joe Biden, who has shown less enthusiasm, to put it mildly, towards Saudi Arabia. So we'll watch all of that. But it looks like the new government will be finalized very soon and uh, come into full power. But yes, in the meantime, he is the prime minister-elect. Well, that's very interesting, Dave. Uh, Saying that he is going to use his relationship with the Saudi Arabians to help solve the Palestinian issue, does that make sense to you? Do you think there's anything to that? I don't think there's much of a chance of it uh, at this point. Again, he's He's bringing in the most right-wing government that Israel's ever had, and it has these men, Ben Gavir in particular, has made some pretty strong anti-Arab statements in the past. Netanyahu pointed out in both interviews this week that he has modified those positions and he no longer espouses them, but you still have him on record saying that all Israeli Arabs should be expelled and the Palestinians expelled and this sort of thing. So, you know, the Saudis are not going to be eager to deal with such a government, I wouldn't imagine. And of course, they have their own issues right now and they're cozying up to China and the Iran situation remains very, very tense. So, Uh, We'll just see. But if anything can bring uh, Israel and Saudi Arabia together, it would be Iran. If we move into the phase of a full hot war with Iran, then I think the Saudis are going to need, frankly, not only U.S. support, but some Israeli support. And Israel will need all the support it can get from whatever direction. So that might be a key to what happens. Well, one group that is saying that they are concerned about this potentially right-wing government that is being formed in Israel is Hamas, and they recently celebrated an anniversary in Gaza, and they are saying that they are very concerned about this government, especially as it relates to their position on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Yes, Rick, it's the 35th anniversary this week of Hamas's founding. I was reporting in Israel at the time when they came on the scene. I wrote a book that included a lot of their founding charter in it, seven pages worth, and was criticized by some of my colleagues who said they'll never become a major player in the Arab-Israeli conflict. The PLO has that role. And of course, sadly, they have become the largest player. But Ismail Haniyeh, the overall head 
of uh, Hamas based in Damascus. Uh, he threatened retaliation for any status quo changes on the Temple Mount. He said, we will guard Jerusalem. The sword that we pulled out last year during the war uh, has not been put back in its sheath, and we will continue to agitate over Jerusalem, essentially. And the Gaza Strip head of Hamas, they had a big parade there this week. He basically echoed that same, said the same things. And of course, they all realized that the Temple Mount can get the Muslim world riled up pretty much like nothing else can. And, you know, we say it's the third largest holy site in Islam, but you know the reason for that. It's because they say that Muhammad rode there on a flying horse and made a night visit to heaven and then came back to the Temple Mount. Well, that story about the flying horse is in the Quran, but no mention of Jerusalem. That was added much later. So, you know, they just recognized it's Judaism's holiest site on earth and the holiest city on earth for Christians, too. So they wanted a piece of that pie, uh, but they continue to agitate over the Temple Mount, and that's uh, certainly not going to change. Well, David, another story in the news that I'd like to get your thoughts on is the fact that when we talked about this last week, the fact that the U.N. seems to have a particularly biased approach towards Israel and that came to light again this week when a potential high-ranking official had some very anti-Semitic things in her social media history. Yes, she's Italian, Rick, and she's the head of the UN Human Rights Council's uh, bureau that deals with Israel and the Palestinians. So she has a very influential role there. She's been doing that for six years. Well, the Times of Israel newspaper this week uncovered some postings she had made in 2014 during the uh, Gaza-Israel war of that year, in which she slammed Israel very strongly. She said the Jewish lobby has taken control of the United States that the, quote, Israel lobby controlled the BBC in England. I, I can tell you that's not the case at all. Their st stories are at the very least balanced, but often very anti-Israel. So she made these very strong statements that are being now condemned as anti-Semitic by um, various politicians and uh, Jewish groups, even an American uh, spokesman uh, who deals with this issue also denounced it. So she may be forced to resign. And just another example of the uh, deep U.N. bias against Israel that we know. I mean, just the votes they take every year confirm that. But uh, this is a little bit stronger material. And uh, she said, I no longer believe those things. That was then. Um, I made some mistakes. So she more or less apologized for it. But she may be uh, on her way out the door as a result of that. Just another incident, David, at the UN that seems to prove they're biased against Israel. Well, David, my final question has to do with what is taking place in Qatar right now, and that is the World Cup. And there has been a scandal that has broken out this week between the EU and Qatar, and many are claiming that bribery and corruption was involved in choosing Qatar to host the World Cup. And David, this potentially sheds a light onto how the Arab world influences the European Union when it comes to events taking place in the Middle East. Well, Rick, really this goes back to the 1970s, to the uh, Yom Kippur War and the oil crisis that followed that. Ever since then, Europe, but not only Europe, 
has been pretty heavily dependent on the Middle East and has understood how important that uh, oil has been to them over the years and relations, et cetera, all the business dealings. And really, I could talk two hours about this, Rick, and not even cover everything, but just the the short summary, a corruption scandal, as you say, um, forces in, in several European countries have uncovered uh, stashes of money, large amounts of euros, etc., that were apparently intended for parliament members of the European Parliament. Uh, one, a female from Greece in particular, has been fingered as taking some of this bribery money. But then that brings up the question, did Qatar get the World Cup because of uh, influence peddling in recent years? Uh, you know, what else have they gotten as a result of that? Well, David, so many things going on in the Middle East. We appreciate you keeping us updated on these events, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. You're welcome, Rick. God bless. Well, we're going to take a break right now on Prophecy Today, but when we return, we're going to talk about Hanukkah with both Winky Madad and Steve Herzog. You won't want to miss that. Stay tuned right here on Prophecy Today Radio. Have you ever wanted to visit Israel and trace the footsteps of Jesus? With Rick and Jim's VIP trips, you'll see Israel past, present, and prophetic. Our VIP trips are typically smaller groups of 8 to 12 people. This smaller group size allows us to spend more one-on-one time answering your questions and personalizing our tour. It is a very intimate experience. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time not to only visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. We can also customize our trip for your family or small group. Please call Joshua Travel today and see how we can make your trip extra special. Call 423-821-3635 or visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, this next half hour, we're going to be talking to Israel Madad in Israel. And then, of course, Steve Herzig, Friends of Israel Ministries, North American leader, as we talk about Hanukkah. And we'll be talking to both of these gentlemen about Hanukkah in Israel and Hanukkah in the United States. Rick. Winky Madad joins us today. He is a frequent guest and contributor of the program. He lives in the area of Judea and Samaria. That's the biblical name. Some in the mainstream media may call it the West Bank. We prefer to call it by its biblical name. Winky is the former mayor of Shiloh. Winky, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me on. Always a pleasure. Well, Winky, I'd like to start off by getting your take about the new government that is forming in the Knesset right now, led by Benjamin Netanyahu. Many are saying it's a quote-unquote right-wing government, and they are saying that it may be favorable to those that are in the area of Judea and Samaria. And we've rehearsed this many times on this program, Judea and Samaria, biblical lands, that's the biblical name. But those in the mainstream media, they may call it the West Bank or even occupied territories. So I know that you live in that area. What do you think the prospects are for Judea and Samaria with this new government? Well, first of all, I'm, I'm optimistic, okay? That, let, let's get that 
right out front. This government is different from almost almost all the other governments, not all, but almost all the other governments that Mr. Netanyahu has been leading as prime minister uh, with a coalition. And I remind our listeners, we've done this maybe dozens of times, we have coalition politics here in Israel, which means not one party rules, but a, a group of parties get together to form a government. This time, however, the coalition is much more, as you indicated, pro-Judea and Samaria, pro-firm security stance, and additional what we would call, in anywhere in the world, normative right-wing positions. Here in Israel, we've had several difficulties in moving on the ground. In other words, even before declaring annexation or absorbing any of the territories like was on the agenda with Donald Trump's peace plan that sort of fell through because Mr. Netanyahu is very cautious uh, on these issues. Uh, you can say that's bad. You can say that's good. I'm not going to make a, a, a personal opinion on this. I'm just trying to describe for our listeners. He's always been very cautious. And now he has a government, the 64 the majority, the vast majority of which are very firm on Judea and Samaria, which means getting rid of the lawyers in the civil administration that have been sabotaging efforts, stopping illegal Arab construction in Area C, uh, legalizing or authorizing the young, what we call the young communities, that uh, some of them are still either in tents or in shacks where it can be done and other issues, but the short answer after this long explanation is I do expect a much more positive attitude and steps on the ground dealing with Judea and Samaria. There are some saying that this right-wing government might explore annexing that territory. What do you think about that? I would think that Mr. Netanyahu, as prime minister, is still in a stage of pre-annexation, if you want to call it that. In other words, he wants to prepare as much as possible everything behind the scenes or behind the curtain uh, for some international situation to come together where he can make his move. He tried, as I mentioned in the, in the previous uh, response, to Trump's peace plan, which fell through. That's because uh, actually members of the Yesha Council we're afraid that in accepting how they interpreted Trump's plan, it wouldn't allow for the entire area to be annexed and it actually would allow for a Palestinian state. So these two things sort of gummed up the works, uh, to use an American expression. Uh, and I think Mr. Netanyahu has learned from that. And he wants to not jump the gun and not to, to run out in front, but to to build everything and put things in place to, and then just draft the last piece. Well, Winky, we use you to explain the political process in Israel, but we also talk to you about Jewish life and Jewish customs. And Hanukkah starts this week. We'd love to hear your thoughts on Hanukkah and what it means to you as a Jew living in the land of Israel there. Well, I could get very complicated. I'll try to make it plain and straight out. Those of you either in Israel or in America or anywhere else in the world passing through Jewish neighborhoods or the one Jewish house on your street <laughs> uh, <laughs> might see a, an 
eight armed candelabra. And each night, if you pass by the house or pass by the window, you will see the uh, lights. Actually, the two on the first night, because we always use a a service lighting candle with each of the candles we light. We can, eight nights, there'll be eight candles shining with one extra light for the uh, uh, for the serving light. And that goes on night by night. And if you happen to get close to the door, you'll probably smell some latkes, which are <laughs> fried potato patties. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, I, if, that, if that's the way you can describe it. <laughs> And if you're lucky, also some type of a donut that is is made in oil. If you are in America, it won't taste the best, okay? I can tell you right now. You have to come to Israel to get the sufganiot with jelly-filled donuts. It, it's out of this world. It also makes your belt go out of this world also because <laughs> you get a little bit too many calories. But the holiday has a very uh, serious side to it. In the uh, second century before the Common Era, at around about 167, 165, a priestly family by the name of the Hasmoneans, Mr. Hasmonean, uh, Yohanan his name was, led a revolt against the occupying Syrian Greeks. And after a series of battles, they liberated much, much of Judea. And in fact, for the next 20, 30 years continued on the line until things got a little bit sticky. And uh, I think it's kind of funny with quotation marks that many liberal Jews or non-religious Jews or even anti-Israel Jews get very excited about the holiday. But the holiday celebrates a, a war of armed military liberation (laughs) against an occupier. (laughs) B, they rededicated the temple after conquering uh, Jerusalem. C, almost all of the nine battles, if I'm not mistaken, eight out of the nine main battles at that first stage were all in the areas of Judea and Samaria, which of course they think is occupied territory. Uh, So it has a little bit of a complex influence on some people who don't realize the the origins of the holiday uh, it also is a holiday against assimilation uh, with the greek surrounding community so it's it's not the holiday for reformed jews with a small r or less than observant but okay everybody wants to be happy let them be happy let them have latkes let them light up the candles Well, Winky, your description of Hanukkah begs the question, do you see similarities between what took place then with uh, the Maccabeans and what is taking place now, especially with the fact that they culminated with the retaking of the temple, and it looks like there's a progression there in uh, in the land of Israel right now along the same track? If I wanted to be philosophical about it, I would say Jews of the last few centuries uh, have done a lot in terms of returning political sovereignty to ourselves, putting us back into history, coming out of the Holocaust, and major scientific, hygienic, economic advances all over the place. But we still have that inability to take one more step to fulfill biblical prophecy, 
and Jewish historical intentions about redemption. And I guess it's still a little bit of a human frailty to be unable to be brave enough to, to march on. And we need a, maybe a few more, I don't know what, days, weeks, months, years to get our spine a little bit more straightened out and strengthened. Well, Winky, I do appreciate it when you wax philosophical. That was a very informative answer, and we appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. I'd like to be the first to say Happy Hanukkah, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you for your blessings, and thank you for being allowing me to be on the program. And goodbye to you and our listeners. Israel Madad is our gentleman that we always go to, and I, we love talking with him. He lives in Shiloh. He brings a lot to the table, helping us to understand what's taking place in the Mideast and uh, in Israel, uh, surrounding countries, uh, the involvement of not only a two-state solution, but then Europe getting involved and uh, what's happening. And he's very involved in the Temple Mount, and it's always good to, to hear w what's taking place on the Temple Mount with the Temple Institute and helping us to understand how that's becoming more and more relevant and and more uh, observed by a lot of Jews in the land of Israel to some that uh, don't understand all that, surprisingly enough. Well, another person that we go to is a friend of ours, Steve Herzig. If you've been with us through the years, Steve Herzig was always the one that we would go to about the time of the Jewish holidays. And Steve, it is a Jewish holiday and uh, you're back with us. We do have a holiday coming up, and it's Hanukkah. I love Hanukkah. You know, the saying is that uh, whenever there's a Jewish holiday, it usually means that uh, there was bad time for Israel. They had a fight. We won, and let's eat. <laughs> I love that. So we, it is Hanukkah, and here's some of the questions that we're going to talk about today, Steve. So when does Hanukkah start? What is the significance of the festival, and how is it celebrated? Now, despite... Not being mentioned in the Torah, Hanukkah is one of the most highly anticipated and joyous Jewish festivals of the entire year. When does Hanukkah begin this year? Well, Jimmy, it begins Sunday evening because, you know, as I know you know this, when the sun goes down, that's officially the next day. Mm. Uh, they don't use 12 o'clock midnight. Uh, they don't use the sun. Uh, well, they use the sun in the sense that when it goes down and it gets dark, that's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's the next day. So a full day is from sunset to uh, sunset the next day. Okay. Now, why is it different? And a lot of people always, and, and again, you know, we're just helping people to understand why is it on different days? Like There are some years, I think the last time was maybe 2016 when Hanukkah and Christmas overlapped. But why is it different from year to year? Well, you know, we have a, a regular calendar you and I use, a Gregorian calendar, mm -hmm. and that's a solar calendar. Jewish people use a Hebrew calendar. The Bible uses a Hebrew calendar. It's a lunar calendar. And instead of a leap day that we have once every four years, one day every four years, they have a leap month called Adar 2, which they put in about six times every 19 years. Otherwise, the holidays, since it's 30 days according to the moon, it would end up being, you end up celebrating certain holidays way at the wrong time of year. So it's always adjusted. And so while I was growing up, I would ask my parents, 
is such and such holiday early or late <laughs> ah, this year. Yeah. Because it, it so for Hanukkah, an early date would be the end of November would be an early date. Uh, and usually it starts around the first or second week in December. And so that's really the reason why. Now, it happens on the Jewish month of Kislev on the 25th day, correct? And so that is correct. So, what is the significance of the festival? Oh, Jimmy, the, the significance is amazing. I could take you to Jeremiah chapter 31, starting in verse 35, and it really has the formula to destroy the Jews. A lot of people don't know that, but God put in. Uh, in his word, in, through the prophet Jeremiah, the formula to wipe us all out. And that formula is rather simple to understand. God said that if you can go up into the heavens and turn the light out to the sun, mm. so find that light switch, <laughs> and once you turn the light off to the sun, uh, the moon won't reflect its light. So that's step number one. Step number two is to take the foundation of the earth, get your Stanley tape measure, Give us the measurement of the foundation of the earth. And oh, by the way, give us the dimensions of the universe. That is the sky, the whole dimension. And so the reply is going to be, wait a minute, no one can possibly do that. That's exactly right. And so the formula to destroy the Jewish people is to become God. And there's only one of him. And man can never duplicate what God does, which means that Jewish people aren't going away. Unfortunately, none of the people who've tried to wipe us out through history and even currently uh, got that memo. Uh, I wish Antiochus Epiphanes would have gotten that memo back in 165 B.C., uh, a Syrian general who took over, one of the four who took over for Alexander, and he was on his way to uh, attack Egypt, but they had a pact with Rome. And when Rome found out that he wanted to take over, they warned him, and he better stay away, or they would he would meet their wrath. They were coming power. And so as he went back through Israel, Jimmy, he, he got angry. He mm -hmm. was like a child, spoiled child, angry. And he decided to legislate through force a removal of Judaism to mm -hmm. assimilate the Jews or kill them. So he went to the Temple Mount, and he killed a pig on the altar, and threw its blood and juice all over the place, and declared Jerusalem un-Jewish, that if they, if they celebrated any holiday, followed any law, had circumcisions for their eight-day-old baby boys, all that was outlawed. And as a result, uh, was trying to eliminate the Jewish people, anti-Semitism at its best. Well, what happened is he sent garrisons of soldiers throughout Israel, and he sent one of those garrisons to a place called Modin. You've probably been to the modern oh, Modin. Yes. I know mm -hmm. I have. And when they got there, they wanted to uh, ask Hellenist Jews, that is, those Jews who, who weren't keeping the law, who were pretty comfortable with being secular, to kill a pig and to eat it in front of the people. Mm. Well, when that, uh, they asked the high priest, whose name was Mattathias, he refused to do it. And in fact, when a Hellenist Jew volunteered to do it, he killed him. And he had five sons. There was a riot that broke out. Uh, Mattathias and his sons uh, killed that garrison, wiped them out, fled to the mountains, and started guerrilla warfare. Now, the Jewish people were mostly farmers. They weren't fighters. Uh, and once 
battle after battle was won, they gained more and more confidence until three years later, the Maccabees and the Jewish people were able to go back to the Temple Mount, go up that Temple Mount, and cleanse that temple. They defeated Antiochus, who thought he was God, defeated him. And the story is, Jimmy, that they only could find one flask of oil, enough that would burn only 24 hours. But the story, and it's a tradition, is that it lasted eight days, mm. enough for the uh, the high priest to get kosher or fit oil for the lamp, the seven-branched menorah, which was in the holy place. So it's a memorial to the miracle that took place. It's a great story, Jimmy, and you were right when you said that Jewish people celebrate this day. They really do. It's a kid's day uh, because they play dreidel, which has uh, four letters on it, which stand for a Hebrew sentence, which says, a great miracle happened there. That's certainly for the diaspora Jews, those of us who are scattered outside of Israel. When they're in Israel, they play dreidel, and it says a great miracle happened here. Mm. And there are numbers of miracles, obviously, Jimmy, that happen in Israel. So that's the basic story of Hanukkah. Now, how is Hanukkah celebrated today as far as if you in your family, when you were growing up, can you just kind of talk us through that first night and then what happened night after night after night? Oh, uh, Jimmy, yeah, it's it's a great time. I, as I said before, uh, whenever there's persecution, Jewish people are in trouble, they call on to God, he delivers them, and we eat, just <laughs> as we do on Hanukkah. Yeah. And at Hanukkah, we have anything with oil as a reminder of the great miracle that took place. So uh, donuts are a big deal, mm-hmm. uh, potato pancakes are a big deal, anything with oil is eaten. And the way we celebrate, we have a menorah, it's called a Hanukkah. And, you know, Jimmy, you've been in Israel enough to know that when you go to a store to get, uh, you know, if the tourists go to get some sort of gift, they see two different kinds of menorahs. There's the seven-branch menorah and the nine-branch menorah. The seven-branch menorah is the one that models what the temple had, Mm -hmm. seven branches outlined in Leviticus and Exodus. But then there's the nine-branch menorah, and that's for Hanukkah. And so the question would be, wait a minute, I just thought you said it was an eight-day miracle, right? Uh, not a nine-day miracle. But the key is, Jimmy, that one of the candles is usually higher than the other eight, and that's called the Shamus candle, the servant candle. Mm. And according to tradition, again, when I was growing up, you always lit the Shamus candle with a match, and then that candle was the one that lit each of the days. So the first day, as we said, would be the evening of the 28th. There'll be two candles in the menorah. Uh, One will be the Shamus candle, and then that candle will light the first day. And then there'll be three candles for the second day and four Mm. candles. Every time you light the Shamus, and it serves the other candle by providing the light. And we give gifts as well. We celebrate what happened, that Antiochus was defeated we rededicated the temple, uh, and we were able to worship, have temple worship uh, once again, which begs the question, Jimmy, mm. I know you, later you'll be talking about Christmas. I could tell you, Jimmy, there would be no Christmas unless there was Hanukkah. Mm. That's significant. That's why it's so important to us 
as believers. And that's the promise that Jeremiah had back in Jeremiah 31. And so uh, through the saving of the Jewish people, of course, would come the the promised Messiah from the tribe of Judah. Mm. That, of course, would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, celebrating Hanukkah is significant for Jewish people. It coincides with Christmas. I was growing up, I used to be jealous of all the Gentile Christian people I knew. They'd get all these presents, tons of presents under their tree. Well, we get eight presents. My mother would buy little trinkets uh, and each day give us a new present. And that kind of tradition still goes on as presents are shared and uh, lights are lit. And it's a joyous, wonderful day. How can, uh, and I, I started off this by saying that it's not mentioned in the Torah, but it is mentioned in the scriptures. Daniel prophesied that Antiochus would come. Um, Jesus even went to Jerusalem and he proclaimed that I am the light of the world right after or during the festival of lights. How can we today use this as a way to uh, evangelize to the Jewish people, to our Jewish friends. Well, you know, it, it, you're, you're correct when you say that Hanukkah is not mentioned in the, in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament Scripture, but you're also correct. In John chapter 10, mm. it's very significant because in John chapter 10 and verse 22, it says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication, another name for Hanukkah, and it was in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the Temple of Solomon's porch. And, and from verse 22 to verse 30, you have a little account of what was taking place. And, and the Jewish leadership was having trouble with him uh, being the Messiah, the Son of God. He forgave, in chapter 8, he forgave a, a woman caught in adultery. In chapter 9, he, 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 uh, the blind man, he restored his sight. And so he is... He is he is demonstrating who he is, and they're rejecting him. Mm. Uh, and so it's here that he says, using Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication as the background, he says, I and my Father are one. And then he says, no one, that is talking about a sheep, he uses that as an analogy. Mm. He's the great shepherd, he's the chief shepherd, He and so he says, no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Mm. We know that Hanukkah demonstrates that God's promise is true. The Jewish people as a nation, as a people, are not going to be wiped out, and we can apply that in our Christian walk once we truly trust Christ as our Savior. Uh, and that, that is a personal decision, and really the only two persons who know is that person and God. But once we do that, we are locked in. There is no power on earth that can snatch them out, out of uh, out of his hand. Mm. And that that's a verse of eternal security, Jimmy, that's so important to you and I, that, that we know that, hey, it's by grace we're saved through faith, not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, Amen. lest any man should boast. So that means when we're in Christ, we're locked in, and he uses that holiday, that holy day, that special day of Hanukkah to drive home that point. How could we... Uh, apply that, and how could we reach out to our Jewish friends? Hey, get them a gift at Hanukkah. Uh, I say it doesn't have to be a huge gift, something to acknowledge. If you have a Jewish friend, a neighbor, walk it over to their home, give it to them at their workstation, uh, and just say, hey, I know Hanukkah's coming. Have a happy Hanukkah. Uh, I love the Jewish people. I'm thankful if it weren't for them, I wouldn't have 
my Jewish Savior or my Jewish Scripture. So have a great holiday. And I am telling you, Jewish people are so thrilled when they are acknowledged by a people, quite frankly, Christians, who they have perceived for years as being enemies of the Jewish people. Mm. Enemies. Mm -hmm. But we're not enemies. We love them. Uh, Your father loved them. Uh, You love them. I love them. And any Bible-believing Christian who knows his or her word, the Word of God, knows that they should love the Jewish people as well. God loves them, and we should love what God loves. So we should love the Jewish people, too. Amen. Amen. I love it, Steve. Thank you so much. Uh, So uh, Steve Herzig is with Friends of Israel. You're the national director, correct? I, yep, I, I direct the work in North American Ministries. In Jimmy. the North American Ministries. Uh, you have a podcast. Where can people find your podcast? Well, you know, that's interesting you ask. If they go to FOI Equip, mm. FOI Equip, uh, and they go on YouTube, mm-hmm. uh, they can see our Jew and Gentile podcast. Or if they uh, subscribe at a particular service podcast, whether that's Spotify or mm-hmm. uh, Apple or whatever it is, uh, all they have to do is type in the Jew and the Gentile, and they could subscribe to our podcast. Steve, thank you so much again with Friends of Israel, uh, a big supporter. We love their ministry and what they do. Uh, we have many friends there, and, and Steve is one of them over the years. Thank you so much. Steve, Hoxamayak to you uh, this holiday season, the Holy Days, and uh, we'll talk to you again on the next Jewish holiday. Looking forward to it, Jimmy. Thanks a lot. Lord bless. Lord bless. Thank you, buddy. We've got to take a break. And when we come back, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the Legacy Series, those shepherds in the shepherd's fields, who were they? Right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. I really love the legacy series that we've been doing all the month of December, Rick, and it is looking at the interesting events that took place around Christmas time. We looked at the month of December. We looked at the date of December 25th. This week, we're going to be looking at the shepherds in shepherd's fields. Rick, it's a great series, isn't it? It sure is, Jimmy, and we've talked about it many times, and half of the prophecies that were in the Bible point towards that event that took place, the most important event in all of history, the arrival of Jesus Christ to the earth. And uh, we've been in shepherd's fields and rehearsed that many times, haven't we? We sure have, and we're going to have a special offer. That's right, Jimmy. We have the DVD called The Bethlehem Beyond the Christmas Story, and we talk about what took place at the shepherd's fields during that time, the arrival at Christ's birth. Uh, If that's something that you would like, if you call our office at 423-825-6247, we would love to give that DVD to you for a donation of any amount. And Jimmy, these last two weeks, the end of the year, this is when we receive a large amount of our support, and we greatly appreciate the support of our listeners. It's what keeps this ministry going. If you appreciate this ministry and the Ministry of Prophecy today overall, if you would consider giving to us at this time of the year, we would greatly appreciate it. You go to our website, prophecytoday.com. And like I said, Jimmy, if you call our office, 423-825-6247, let us show our appreciation by giving you Bethlehem Beyond the Christmas Story or any DVD that you might like for your gift of any amount. Prophecytoday.com. And we thank you in advance for you prayerfully considering giving to our ministry. In our past studies, we studied how Zacharias and Elizabeth 
would have John, John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then we looked at December 25th. Was that the day, the true day, that Jesus Christ was born? This week, we want to focus on the shepherds. There were shepherds there in the shepherd's fields just outside the little village of Bethlehem. Who were they? And what is the significance of where they were there in the shepherd's fields? And by the way, why were they there in the shepherd's fields? Well, we will look at all of that as we continue our study today, and we're going to be looking at the book of Luke, chapter 2, verse 8. As we continue our study of interesting details and facts about the Christmas story, I want to focus in on the shepherds. They were key players in the Christmas story. I want to talk about the shepherds, who they were, where they were located, and why were they there. Naturally, you expect to find shepherds in the shepherd's fields where the sheep are being kept. Most of the time, these were Bedouins or nomads. That's the case throughout the Middle East today. These shepherds, these Bedouins and nomads, will wander from place to place, mostly in the desert, in search of grass for their sheep. You know, that's still the case today. You can travel throughout the land of the Bible and see shepherds in field after field across the countryside. It is amazing to do a study on these shepherds. They know how to care for lambs. Lambs are very dumb animals. In fact, there's a wonderful story told about how one shepherd had to break the leg of one of his lambs in order to teach him discipline so that he would be able to keep the flock together and keep them from going into harm's way. There's an interesting parallel that Jesus Christ has with the shepherds, and that is told in the book of Psalm, chapter 23. The Lord is my shepherd. In fact, there are a number of passages in the Bible where you can read about shepherds. But on that night of the birth of Jesus Christ, the shepherds were in the shepherd's fields. They're just outside the little village of Bethlehem. When we go to the text, Luke chapter 2, now this is one of four chapters in the Bible, some 168 verses, that give us the details and the facts about that Christmas night some 2,000 years ago. Here in Luke chapter 2 and verse 8, we read that there were indeed in that same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came unto them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now notice verse 12 here in Luke chapter 2. And the angel said unto the shepherds, and this shall be a sign unto you. Now let me stop right there just for a moment. For many years I had difficulty understanding what the sign was. The text reads, following that statement by the angel, that ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now you know I really don't understand how that could be a sign. However, these shepherds, after receiving the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, went with haste to find Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. That's verse 16 of Luke chapter 2. 
This was indeed a sign that is a key component of understanding how Bible prophecy laid out every single detail for the birth of the Messiah, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ. Next week, we'll get more into the study of how this was a sign to those shepherds there in the shepherd's fields. Let me think with you just a few moments about who were these shepherds. First of all, they were not little boys, or they weren't even teenagers. You might think as you travel through the Middle East and you see all the shepherds as little boys, maybe in their early or late teens, these are the shepherds that would have been in the fields there that night of the birth of Jesus Christ. You see, these shepherds were also trained as priests that would operate in the temple. Every one of these men had to study for 28 years. They would study from two years of age all the way to 30 when they would qualify to be the priest, and they would study the book of Leviticus. In the book of Leviticus, they would learn how to do the sacrificial activities at the temple. That's the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Then they would learn the standard that they would have to meet to be a priest in the temple. That was chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Leviticus. Finally, from chapters 12 through 27, they would understand how to worship in a temple, which was a key responsibility for all of these priests. However, the priests that were out there in the shepherds' fields that night, they were priestly shepherds with a different responsibility than operating the temple there three miles away from the shepherds' fields. These priestly shepherds were there to watch over the sheep that had a destiny at the temple. Before I get to that, let's think a moment, where were these shepherds' fields? The shepherds' fields were just outside the little town of Bethlehem in the area of Bethlehem Euphrata. Now that's required by the book of Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, because the birth of the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, had to take place in the little town of Bethlehem. So these shepherds' fields were right outside the little village of Bethlehem. I myself have stood right there in those shepherds' fields in the nighttime, looking across those fields over to the lights of the little village of Bethlehem, and had my mind go back some 2,000 years as if I was a shepherd, one of those priestly shepherds there in the shepherds' fields. By the way, these shepherds' fields are the same location where Jacob pitched his tent after he buried his wife, Rachel, who had just given birth to their last son, Benjamin, there in Bethlehem, Euphrata. The text tells us in the book of Genesis chapter 35 that Jacob left the burial site, went back towards Jerusalem, and on the road between Bethlehem and Jerusalem, which is only a three-mile trip, there Jacob pitched his tent at a place called Migdal Adar. Migdal Adar, or translated from the Hebrew, the Tower of the Flock, is a very important location in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy as it relates to the first coming of Jesus Christ. This will also be a part of our study next time we get together. You know, as you read the book of Ruth, you'll find out that these were also the fields of Boaz. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer who actually redeemed Ruth and made her a part of the lineage to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Ruth was the great-grandmother of David, the son of Jesse, who was a shepherd in these same fields. A lot of activity had taken place in this location before that eventful night of the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
Let me remind you who these shepherds were. They were priestly shepherds there in the shepherd's fields in the area of the little town of Bethlehem. But the question still remains, why were these priestly shepherds in these fields? Priestly shepherds had the responsibility of watching over the lambs. You may recall 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is a record of David, the little shepherd boy, who would actually become one day a king of Israel. And the record indicates that he had to watch over his father's sheep there in the shepherd's fields. And one day he went out and had to kill a bear and a lion in order to protect his sheep. Well, these priestly shepherds had that same responsibility to protect these sheep because they were very special sheep. They were lambs that would be sacrificed at the temple some three miles away. You see, these priestly shepherds were serving there in the shepherd's fields because the shepherd's fields were the holding pen for the sacrificial lambs to be offered at the temple. They had to be without blemish and without spot. They must be protected so they could be presented as a pure sacrifice at the temple. In addition to watching over these lambs that were destined to be sacrificed at the temple, these priestly shepherds would give birth to the newborn lambs as well. And they would do that at Migdal Adar. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself in the story, and I need to wait next week to see how Migdal Adar plays into the Christmas story as we look at the interesting details and facts about the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Let me just remind you that these priestly shepherds had the responsibility of watching over these lambs that would be indeed sacrificed at the temple. It was on that Christmas night over 2,000 years ago when these priestly shepherds in the fields just outside the little village of Bethlehem would receive the announcement from the angels that would announce the birth of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Again, let me go to the text, Luke chapter 2, and this time verse 9. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon these shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around about them, and these shepherds were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. These angels then announced to the shepherds, and this shall be a sign unto you. And with haste these shepherds went to find the newborn babe, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, let me remind you that these shepherds' fields were the holding pen for the sacrificial lambs. And on that night, the shepherds' fields would become the holding pen for the sacrificial lamb. Jesus was the sacrificial lamb. He gave his life for you and for me. Jesus, indeed, is the reason for the season. He brings to all of us the gift of salvation, which is a free gift, in fact, the best gift that any of us could ever receive. You know, you can receive that gift of eternal life, that gift of salvation from Jesus Christ, and you can do it today. All that is needed is for you, as I did when I was 11 years old, to admit that 
We're sinners, and we are in the need of a Savior. Then we need to believe that Jesus Christ, who was born some 2,000 years ago, came to this earth to be the ultimate sacrifice for all of sin. He died, he was buried, but three days later he rose from the dead to give us eternal life. All we need to do is call upon him to save us. Romans 10.13 says, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a gift we can receive at this Christmas time. Thank you, Dr. DeYoung. And if you did make a decision to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior this Christmas, please send us an email at jimmyjr at prophecytoday.com. We would love to hear from you. And we have a special gift for you as you start to grow as a newborn Christian. Next week on the broadcast, we'll find out more about what that sign was all about that the angels gave to the shepherds there in the shepherd's fields. Hope you can join us next week as we study more interesting details and facts that are related to the Christmas story. We have to take a break. We'll be right back, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. The United States Africa Leader Summit closes in Washington, D.C., with the U.S. promising to commit $55 billion to Africa over the next three years. Religious freedom was not on the agenda, but Todd Nettleton with the Voice of the Martyrs USA says it should have been. Persecution in Central Africa rose so much this year that VOM is tracking two new countries. Be a voice for the voiceless at missionnews.org. Meanwhile, Sat7 Pars released a new live program called Church for Afghanistan. Most Afghan viewers will see it on Facebook Live, but it'll be broadcast on Instagram as well. The show is hosted by an Afghan pastor living in Germany. The show will look at current situations in Afghanistan through a biblical lens. UNICEF recently designated Afghanistan as the worst place in the world to be born amid health and persecution risks. Pray this program supports the body of Christ in Afghanistan. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible Prophecy Student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore, or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, over the last hour and a half, we have been examining events that very much coincide with Hanukkah from the past. It almost looks like Hanukkah again, and Israel is in that situation again today when we look at Russia, Iran, China. 
the nations of the world, those Arabic Muslim nations of the world that want to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. But one of the things I wanted to talk about today with you is the fact a lot of people ask, how did Jesus bring joy into the world? Isn't that something that you've always come in contact with when we are out speaking and talking to people about Bible prophecy and about the thing, the prophecies of the past leading to the prophecies of the future? It sure is, Jimmy. I mean, we look at that at this time of the year and we think about the question, how did Jesus bring joy into the world? And, and there is so many practical ways that he did bring joy into the world. Jesus brought joy into the world in some very practical ways. Every time he healed a person, cast out a demon, or forgave a sin, joy was the immediate result, Rick. Mm -hmm. Those who recognized Jesus as the promised Savior and Redeemer of the world were filled with joy. That's John chapter 3, verse 29. And when the gospel was spread in the days of the early church, joy always followed that message. You know, that's a beautiful picture that you talk about there, Jimmy, as we, we look at Bible prophecy, we look at current events in the world, and there's so many things taking place in the world that we can be scared of or worried about. But when you talk about Jesus bringing joy into the world, and if you look at it, Jimmy, we as Christians, but basically the world in general and humanity in general yearns for hope. And that's what happens at this time of the year when we think about Christ coming, isn't it? Yes, it's the meaning and purpose of it. Within every human heart is the knowledge of eternity. We know that. Even if we don't recognize it as such, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Without God as a vital part of our existence, only emptiness and futility remain. The world was lost in darkness before Jesus came the first time. God has not spoken through his prophets for over 400 years, the period between Malachi and Matthew, setting the stage for the greatest event of all time. God would become a man and live among us. And really, that goes back to that first prophecy in Genesis chapter 3, correct? That's true, Jimmy. The first prophecy that basically indicates that uh, God would send his son to, to be a sacrifice for our sins. And that's what basically we spend most of the whole Testament looking at. Well, and then, Jimmy, you continue on. I mean, we're thinking about it at this time of the year, and we've touched on it throughout the rest of the program. We're talking about that special moment when the angels announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds in the field. Yes, and today Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in our Legacy Series talked about that event, who those shepherds were, those words, uh, you know, those simple words, go and find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. That was all the information that was given to those shepherds. Um, and I can imagine as we sit out there on the fields where we go next to the area of Migdal Adar, the Tower of the Flock. Uh, Micah talked about that's where the Redeemer would come from, the, the future king of Israel. The prophets should have known this. Uh, those shepherds knew exactly where to go uh, because they were priestly shepherds that were there, and they heard that heavenly host saying, great joy. This was the cause for joy for these men. You know, we always talk about it when we come into the city of Jerusalem, but probably those shepherds were singing, 
This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And that is how Jesus brought joy to the earth. Of course, the main reason that he came was Mm. to eventually end up on Calvary's cross, going to die for us. Uh, For our sake, he made himself that knew no sin, made himself sin, and that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, Those things are brought out, and when we talk about that, that was the reason why Jesus Christ came, to provide a way to have a restored relationship with God the Father in heaven. That's right, Jimmy. And then, of course, the most important event of all time, the death, burial, and resurrection. But then we go after Jesus uh, resurrected, he ascended into heaven to prepare a place. And that's what we talk about. And I know one of the things you and I have talked about when we talk about why we do this program is to put things in context. We are able, because God has given us prophecy from the, the the past that has been fulfilled, and he is giving us prophecy for the future. And this program, we attempt to put where we are right now on God's timeline of events, we attempt to put you in context, and, and that gives us hope for the future because we know what's going to happen, right? That's so true. That's so true, Rick. The wait for God's promised Messiah expressed in passages such as Isaiah 59, 20, and a Redeemer will come to Zion. That's why we focus on Israel. A Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. That was the whole reason for that tribulation period, that 70th week of Daniel, talked about in Daniel chapter 9. The angels announced his arrival with great fanfare. No greater honor could befall the children of Adam than their creator had come to redeem them from Satan's stronghold that began in Genesis chapter 3. That first with the fall of man and the first promise of a coming redeemer, one that would crush the head of Satan. 1 John chapter 5 verses 19 and 20. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his Son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God. So although our earthly life may be filled with troubles, we have a reason for hope. Because Jesus came the first time and is poised to come the second time, we can sing with conviction, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Well, Rick, I trust that you're getting ready for Christmas because it is coming, whether you're ready or not. I am, Jimmy, and it just just rehearsing that Christmas story today. So exciting. The Christmas story that you talked about coming from Luke, coming from the New Testament, but really started in Genesis and is going to finish in Revelation, put the whole picture together, and it gives us hope and joy for the future. Yes, it sure does. Folks, that's why we focus on current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Until next week, let's keep looking up. Until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today.